Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extraction Podcast. Today I'm going to have a conversation with Chinsia DeSantis. Chinsia is a marine biologist with an MBA. She's from Venezuela and lives in the United Kingdom, where she's been since 2003. She has worked for international NGOs, oil companies for over 30 years in the environmental sector. Since she retired from her full-time job, she founded a charity she calls it Healing Venezuela. And it focuses on alleviating the health crisis in her home country. Chinsia, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila. A pleasure to be here. That's wonderful. I, I wanted to uh, draw from your experience as an environmentalist, but specifically working in the oil sector. So can you just tell us what do we know about the nature of the drivers of petroleum sector carbon footprint? The nature of the oil and gas industry is heavy in carbon footprint uh, and in all its stages of development. So since the exploration phase up to the delivery phase. Um, the, the sadness is that in the past few years, there has been a deliberate disinformation campaign about climate change, but actually uh, it means we have lost a decade during which the oil and gas sector uh, hasn't had the public and government pressure to change. And there is some, still some skepticism in some groups in society, but less so. Uh, and extreme weather um, events have also raised the awareness about uh, the need to tackle climate change. So now the drivers for change are shifting. Uh, it started, of course, with the scientific community, but now more and more people, especially the young and politicians, also for non-green parties, uh, have they have to have a green manifesto to convince voters. At least this is what's happening in um, in the countries in the West, rich uh, countries in the West. Okay, uh, what, so the drivers are let's say it start. There is a shift from the scientific community to the general public, and as I say, that the younger younger people, uh, because the reality is that the oil and gas sector is high, uh, is intensive in, in carbon footprint. Now, let's be clear. Uh, we the industry uh, it's what we call scope one and two, which is basically the are the emissions controlled by the company from let's say all stages of development from the exploration, uh, production, processing, logistics. These are twenty percent of the total uh, uh, carbon footprint or carbon emissions of the oil and gas sector. Because if we take in consideration the consumers. Basically, this is 80% in the life cycle of the, of the oil and gas. 80% it's what consumers, um, what is, is, the user, is the end user. Uh, so there is a, here we need to understand that the oil sector has a responsibility in terms of scope one and two of emissions, but uh, consumers, which is scope three, have actually the, the most of the burden of the carbon footprint of the oil industry is on the end uh, users, okay? Um, now, the, I think that the, the world is, was really waking up and uh, changing. Then the war in Ukraine has somehow stalled the efforts, uh, but you can still see that at least it's in the political discourse and it's not has not been dropped 
from the radar screen of governments, at least as in the in the West. So I hope that once this crisis hopefully uh, is solved very very soon. Uh, we will go back to the momentum that the carbon footprint and climate change in general had uh, before this uh, before this war. Hmm. So I'd like to follow up on a couple of things that you raised. You you described the oil and gas industry's carbon footprint as huge. Yeah. Uh, so so to my question, what what makes it huge? I mean, you you said twenty percent is in the scope one and two emissions, which are in the yeah. purview of the actual operations upstream and midstream. And then yeah. you've said 80% is the, the uh, user end. Can you, yeah. can you I mean, we, we can appreciate what happens when you pump oil, you, 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 uh, you know, transport it and so on. But what happens in the user space that drives this 80%? The user space is basically gas, electricity, you know, to warm up our homes, to cool down our homes, to um, uh, for for industry to be used for, you know, heavy industries like cement or um, so basically end users are all of us who use uh, the the energy that is the oil and gas produced by the, the companies, the oil and gas companies, the industry. So in an oil and gas industry, let's start from the beginning. Let's forget about the planning phase, which happens in offices, discussion, etc. But from the moment that you start to explore, which means seismic operations, which means you need to uh, have this um, have to to identify or map out the reservoir uh, that implies heavy machinery moving around on land or even on, on water uh, to put this um, seismic charges to to make this reading. So that's the first you know the very first phase. And then once you have concluded and you have mapped out a potential reservoir, you need to send a huge machine, a drilling rig, uh, to uh, you know to the site, which also will consume a lot of energy to do that. Then you need to drill the well, and the drilling. Can you imagine how much uh, you have to uh, energy you have to use once you drill a well? Let's say. 3,000, 6,000 uh, meters or kilometers, sorry, meters or feet. Um, that's a lot of energy that you need to use. Then for this, uh, this to flow, the, the, the oil to flow back, it needs to be treated. So to treat the oil, to separate it from gas, from water, etc., uh, etc., et that's another massive amount of, of uh, consumption. And then to distribute it. So the, the in the, the different phases of the oil industry, you have th this sort of, but then once the, the oil and gas are distributed, distributed uh, you know, as I said before, just in your, in our own, in a very familiar domestic setting, whether it's the, the, the electricity, the hot water, the kitchens, the um, uh, fridges, and so you scale it up to, Big, uh, big industries that consume a lot of uh, a lot of energy. Mm. Um, any sort of industry, you know, and the hospitals as well. You know, research centers. So we, as a human, as human beings, uh, human beings embrace new technologies with so much enthusiasm. But actually, we don't think thoroughly about the consequences of of this enthusiasm. And this is what's happening with uh, the the fossil fuels. So oh, wow, wow. 
So, I, I, you know, I'm mindful that uh, not everybody is in the uh, petroleum industry space and, and some of the things that you say that may seem obvious aren't. But my, my reading of what you're saying is uh, the carbon footprint of uh, oil and gas is largely because of the applications yeah. in industry, in our homes, in our schools, yeah. in our hospitals. Absolutely. It is not because most people, when we talk about uh, the petroleum sector and its fossil fuels, we, we look to the multinational uh, oil companies and gas companies yeah. and we forget ourselves. What you're really saying is once they put the products in the market, first we have a choice of offtake. <sighs> And secondly, we have a choice on how much we uh, consume and how frequently. And that the choices we have made, either in the industry space, in the domestic and you know services industries, account for eighty yeah. percent of the associated, uh, you know, uh, state fossil fuel, yeah, fossil fuel. The contribution of fossil fuels to the to the to environment the, to the environment. No, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, you know this is just something that has been studied, has been um, it has been uh, verified, measured, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that that's the real that's the reality. So um, it's um, you know if there is one problem where we as citizens. Uh, could have an impact is isn't this because we really it's really in our hands so to make an effort to 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 make an effort uh, and so you know and once the demand goes down well the oil industry will need to follow through and will need to change and will need to evolve into um, a more environmentally friendly um, industry which is actually what's happening no? many all all companies are now focusing again on renewable. Uh, but we had this lost decade, this decade during which um, there was a disinformation campaign about climate change. And basically, the focus of the oil industry also changed. Uh, and I could see, them, you know, throughout my career, um, the, the, the interest of uh, the top executives in, uh, in, in the green agenda uh, changed completely. And during those years, you barely you could barely... Um, heard, I mean, even divesting, there were some divestments in large industries in the uh, in renewable energy, which is now picking up again. Mm. So, um, yeah. So you, you talk about misinformation. Tell me more about that. What was the nature of the misinformation and, and how did it result to us losing about a decade in which we yeah. could have done better? There is a documentary, Sheila, that explains this quite well. But basically, uh, and I, we don't know exactly, we really don't know. I mean, we, society or researchers, couldn't pinpoint the responsibles of this misinformation. But um, there was uh, an exchange of emails. There is a specific incident, which is an exchange of email between one of the a top leader researchers here in the UK about climate change and some of his colleagues, which was taken out of context and saying, see something on the lines of, oh, well, I mean, uh, this is so-called uh, talks about, um, you know, so-called here, I don't understand why we keep talking about uh, global warming. S something on the line, I don't remember exactly the wording, but basically 
there was this deliberate effort to um, emphasize on, for example, this specific exchange of this um, scientist here in the UK, who actually then had to go to parliament and explain himself and say, you look at this completely out of context and so on. And also there are some scientists that I think in good faith, I, I find it hard to believe that scientists can be, um, um, you know, uh, talking on behalf of, of large interests, but it might happen, uh, who are skeptical about, were skeptical about uh, climate change. And, and the focus was, well, but you, you see, in, uh, um, if you look at mankind, if you look at the, the um, temperatures, um, throughout um, the, the uh, different eons and the different periods, you can see that we had glaciations, then we had warmer periods and so on. And that's true. The problem is that never ever uh, the concentration of CO2 has been in the atmosphere has been as high as it's been now. So, you know, you can nuance the argument in a way that uh, you can see uh, you can plant some skepticism. And this is what happened and in a systematic way and for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's um, it's unfortunate, um, it, but it definitely helped um, in a way change the focus or shift the focus from what was an important topic in the in the 2000 and before in the year up to 2010 and the, the end of the last years of the last century um it, it was uh, this was a lot lost time it's called the lost decade hmm. so uh, again uh, taking a, a lay person's view we talk of the petroleum industry which simplistically speaking uh involves both oil uh, and mm. gas. Now, environmentally, what do we know about the uh, relative footprint of oil to gas projects? Uh, in terms of the, the focus, and I apologize if I use some technical some te technical terms like seismic and so on, but basically the, the phases of, um, of finding oil and gas uh, uh, are similar. Uh, uh, are similar okay so you have to explore you have to to have you have to identify where the reservoir is okay and that's part of the exploration which includes um this seismic and, and drilling and then the production uh of and the treatment um of the two products is slightly different uh but uh burning natural gas so the advantage of the gas has over oil is that burning natural gas for energy results in much less emissions of nearly, nearly all air pollutants. So we're talking about um, SOX, um, uh, emissions of sulfur, of uh, nitrogen, uh, and, and, so, and of course CO2, okay? And it's basically half of the CO2 emission for the same amount of energy produced. So in a sense, Mm, is, uh, natural gas and emphasis in natural gas now is is quite correct because if we think about the eighty percent that I told you earlier, uh, this basically if we focus on on gas rather than oil, uh, that means that eighty percent of consumption of contribution of CO two is reduced by half if we all 
the energy came from from gas. So basically, you are saying uh, when it comes to exploration and searching for yeah. <clears throat> uh, oil or gas fields, uh, basically th- that level uh, or, or, or scope one uh, stage is pretty much the same. But when it comes to now uh, processing uh, and, yeah. and and the the two. Uh, substances, their emissions, you have more intensity uh, on just about any category of emission when you're dealing with oil relative to gas. That's basically what separates them. So basically, scope one and two, uh, scope one and two is what the company is absolutely responsible for and can control. Mm -hmm. Scope three is what consumers do. Okay. Absolutely. So consumers, so because of the consumers, what do they use? They use energy. Okay. For the same amount of energy consumed by us at school, doctors, hospitals, industries, as I said, for the same amount of energy produced, when you're using gas instead of oil, you're using half of the CO2 emissions mm-hmm. that you would use if if you were using energy coming from oil and much less of all the other pollutants like particles, for example, uh, and this one that I say, the nitrogen and, and sulfur. So it's much more convenient to use from an environmental point of view, to use gas rather than, than using energy coming from gas rather than coming from oil. I, I guess this is why uh, there has been some consensus now that uh, gas uh, is what they call the transmission, the transition, uh, yeah. you know, uh, fossil fuel. Because as we want to move away and dislodge ourselves from fossil fuels, because of yeah. this much lower carbon footprint, we think yeah. you know, getting away from oil as quickly as possible, but yeah. at this, while sticking with gas as we find uh, and ramp up renewable and less. Uh, carbon intensive sources of energy, gas becomes the alternative because of this. Yeah, exactly. This is exactly the point, yeah. But but what do we know? Uh, I mean, it's one thing you and I are talking about the environment, but of course, there are many other factors uh, around which people make decisions. And and if you think about a a family home, cost is everything. What do we know Mm. about the relative cost of uh, using uh, gas as an energy source? in comparison, say, to oil? I, the, the, the exact, I, I don't think that you can make, um, kind of a, I can make a clear distinction because usually companies, uh, when they deliver the, uh, let's say, when, to the point of use of user, they do a mix of, um, of um, of of fuels, okay, but it shouldn't be different. I don't think actually, it, it probably in if any in any case, should be probably less. It's cheaper to use gas rather than use oil. That's not the case. I mean, the case is not there is not such a huge difference in terms of of uh, oil, oil or gas compared to um, other sources of uh, fuel like um, solar, wind, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the, the economics for oil and gas are quite similar. So that's that shouldn't be a consideration in that sense. So you could definitely easily use gas um, uh, as your source of, uh, without having to affect your, your family's budgets, let's put it that way. Mm. So uh, 
you know, oil and gas projects, uh, quite a, a lot of very large ones are offshore. Yeah. Um, so based <clears throat> on what you're saying, is it correct then to assume that uh, the carbon footprint is the same whether they are on and offshore because you still have to go searching for uh, the uh, oil fields or the gas fields and you still have to do the drilling uh, build platforms and so forth and so forth. Is, is the carbon footprint any different whether you are on or offshore? It all depends, uh, uh, it really, to be quite honest, it all depends on, <clears throat> on the size of the facility and also on different, there are different factors that you need to take in consideration. So, I mean, offshore, of course, it's, uh, it's very complicated because you need to do a lot of um, shipping and, and flying and lo the logistics is a nightmare. Sometimes when you drill offshore, you have to drill very deep down. And as we unfortunately know, uh, to control a spill uh, in a, a marine environment is much more complicated than to control it in a, uh, on, a, on, the la on land, okay? So, uh, there, so basically, ideally, uh, um, you know, an, an oil and gas exploration production should, uh, offshore should happen in an area where the environmental impact of the area is limited uh, in terms of biodiversity, in terms of corridors um, for species to migrate, to spawn, and so on. So <clears throat> it all depends, you know, you, you, it's, it's, to be quite honest, it's a balancing act. Mm. Um, and you have to take in, in consideration all these factors, so the size, the location, et cetera, et cetera, the mitigating measures that you need to take, how much you're going to invest to treat, produce waters and dispose them uh, offshore versus onshore. So it's difficult to make a like-to-like -like comparison. So, but but what you're saying basically is that generally scale uh, matters rather oh, than yeah. whether or not it is uh, uh, an oil or uh, onshore or offshore. Now, you, you made reference to water. I mm. mean, t tell us about the interface between the use of water in... Uh, oil uh, projects, how, how does water become a factor? Water is used, again, in all stages of, uh, of, uh, of an oil and gas development. Uh, from the moment that you, for example, when you have to, when you drill, you use these big drilling rigs, you know, these big structures. And to, and they have, a, a, a let's say, the tip of the drilling rigs rig needs to be constantly um, uh, cooled down because of the friction that it causes. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it makes it less effective. So there you have a lot of water being used to cool down the, 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 the drilling rig. Then you have the, the water that is used to dispose of the, to collect the drill cuttings. For example, mm -hmm. so all the, the dirt, all the, the, the cuttings that come out of there need to be, you know, washed and disposed in a, in, a, um, in a responsible way. Then, for example, in another phase, like injecting, when you have to recover a reservoir, you inject lots and lots and lots and lots of water to recover it, to clean the drilling rigs uh, or drilling sites. Uh, it's, again, a, a lot of water to process. So the what some what can be done 
uh, in the oil industry, and some companies do it more better than others, is to reduce as much as possible the use of water, reuse as much as possible uh, the same amount of water, and recycle, which means you know clean the water that you have used to recycle it. Uh, but it's you know it's not an easy operation. So the oil industry competes for water. In a, in a very severe way. Um, so, yeah, it's a, <clears throat> it's another impact that needs to be taken in consideration. Yeah, so uh, I, I can see the competition for water on land uh, mm. uh, because, of course, uh, whether you are using surface water or underground water, you are using water that other industries, including domestic water use, are mm. also competing uh, for. But I wanted to, to you to transport uh, the listeners to the offshore. So, mm -hmm. sure, we presumably we get uh, uh, water from the sea, yeah. uh, uh, which mm -hmm. we use to clean, you know, as you said, to to extract uh, from the oil field. What happens to this water? Let Let's say we don't uh, recycle it. What happens to it? Uh, uh, responsible companies uh, have to treat it, okay? So before you discharge this water, this water has to meet certain criteria for discharge. Uh, and you, you need to make sure that you have the right <clears throat> concentration of certain pollutants, which is acceptable or, uh, uh, to discharge, that they have the right amount of, uh, of the quality of the water needs to be consistent with the standards and the legislation of the country that, that you are operating, <clears throat> where you are operating. Unfortunately, we know of many cases where the law exists, but the law is not applied because it's not enforced. So this water and this, all these cuttings and so on are dumped in the ocean uh, without being treated. And that's um, you know that's something that unfortunately still happens. Yeah. So so really, in that sense, the uh, oil and gas industry is no different than any other industry. You you have uh, companies with responsible people yeah. who will not only uh, apply industry standards but also uh, you know operate according to the latter of the law. And okay. then uh, we have countries. That for whatever reason, either because they don't have the capability for oversight or because for yeah. whatever reason they are willing to turn a blind eye. And when you combine uh, companies that are not willing to do the right thing and regulators that are not willing to hold them to account, then, of mm -hmm. course, uh, you have an open field. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so once again, just as uh, human beings uh, control uh, the demand for fossil fuel-related energy. Yeah. Human beings also control the extent to which oil companies and uh, gas companies can be held to account. And, and when we don't do this, we have essentially all been culpable, yeah. aren't we, Chinsia? Uh -huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and that's a, it's, um, it's a kind of, in a way, a, to be an environmentalist in an oil industry, in the oil industry, as I was, uh, sometimes it was very nice. Uh, you had, you know, sensible people uh, who wanted to respect the laws, but sometimes you don't. 
sometimes you really have to fight uh, and you have to 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 stick to the to you know to to the, to the right principles and because pe people tend to to take the 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 quick way like the quickest way you know the, the quickest solution which is dump everything if you mm. and, and so uh, as an environmentalist part of what you would be doing presumably is uh creating a baseline uh yeah. but also uh, then monitoring and then yeah. uh, informing so that those in the operations would take corrective actions and and presumably it is when you do this that there can be a difference of opinion yes yes uh, the baseline is actually that's a very good point uh, because you before you um especially when you are in a new area, you need to have a baseline of what's the what's the condition of the environment, which are the species that you have, if there are any sensitive species or endangered, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Then you have to do an environmental impact assessment where basically you establish what's the environmental impact of this operation. And, and so you can take measurements to reduce that environmental impact. And then you have to have a monitoring program, which means, you have to continuously monitor the quality of the water that you're discharging, the quality of the gases that you are discharging, uh, the quality, for example, of the underground water, and, and so on, and have to have this monitoring program to follow all the potential to identify or to be um, to have early warnings on of any potential issues, environmental issues that arise from the oil and gas operations. So you can have, let's say, these agreements in all stages, both at the point of, you know, baseline. Oh, do we really need the baseline? Or do we need such an extensive, uh, exhaustive uh, baseline? Or can we do just a little bit less or not the, the whole area? And then environmental impact assessment. Well, can we, do we really need to do everything that the environmental impact assessment is suggesting and then the monitoring? So let's say that these agreements can come at any stage and it's more about um, the culture of the company uh, uh, rather than anything else uh, um, that, that, that would make a difference between a, a good, a responsible oil and gas company versus one that doesn't care too much about it. Mm -hmm. Here is my final question to you. Um, you know, um, the and I'm, I'm interested here on offshore and impact on marine, being a, a marine mm -hmm. uh, environmentalist yourself. So yeah. uh, what do we know about that? I mean, it doesn't look to me like the physical footprint uh, of the rigs is particularly large. But of course, you have ships coming in and out, bringing yeah. uh, people, bringing cargo, uh, collecting the the product, then my assumption is that the activity scales up a bit. Mm. You know, give us a, a a very brief appreciation of what the potential impact is uh, to the marine world with this kind of traffic. It depends on the marine environment. If it's, for example, a sensitive area like uh, a coral reef 
basically it, that should never ever ever happen nothing should happen near a, a coral reef because it takes forever to recover because many other reasons if you have you uh, you are in an area where biodiversity is low where um and there are no and the corridors of certain species it's not it's not interfered by um by the, the construction uh, and where you have uh, and spawning um, of certain species it's not altered well then you can have a, 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 a an operation an oil and gas um uh, operation and then what is now starting to become very interesting is that stranded access as uh, assets like you know platforms that are left there uh, because the the, it's, uh, the operation is finished, actually are good um, areas to for for life to to flourish because they they create a lot of surface. Uh, all these structures under under the surface to create a lot of sur surface. The the whole point, Sheila, is that none of the impact uh, can be irreversible. These are all impacts that can be reversed. When you have an operation that you know that the impact can be reversed, then that's kind of a um, the let's say a common sense um a, a common sense approach to to this uh to these large scale operations yeah no so i think i understand that what you're saying is first you must know the extent to which the ecosystem is or is not delicate yeah exactly and and, and, and then from that moment on you take a view on whether or not you can reasonably go in there because yeah. Uh, of the potential level of disturbance and the potential level of long-term damage. But that Absolutely. presumably happens at exploration because if you explore and you find oil, my guess is it would be a tough call to now say, we are not going to go ahead. So so th this, this decision precedes the exploration yeah. space. And then you just know this area is too delicate to impose any kind of uh, activity. Well, uh, Chinsia, that was very helpful. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila My Planet pleasure. broadcast. Thank you, Sheila.